You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 294 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, it was June 30th, 1863, and Ulysses S. Grant received the welcome news that all of the saps would reach Confederate lines within a few days. When that happened, up to 13 mines could be exploded more or less simultaneously under the rebel positions. This was the goal Grant and his army had been working toward throughout the siege. Grant decided that the final federal assault on the Confederate defenses would be tentatively scheduled for July 6th, and with that, the curtain was about to open on the final act in the great Vicksburg drama. As the federal noose around Vicksburg tightened, both civilians and soldiers trapped within Confederate lines found themselves caught up in a desperate quest for survival. For many people in the beleaguered city, life under siege soon translated into life underground. Those who could fled to caves that were dug into the hills to escape the rain of shells from Union guns and mortars that dropped down upon Vicksburg. One woman wrote, The caves were plainly becoming a necessity as some persons had been killed on the streets by fragments of shell. Another resident remarked, Caves were fashion, the rage over besieged Vicksburg. Negroes who understood their business hired themselves out to dig them at from $30 to $50 according to size. Despite resorting to subterranean living, many of the townspeople remained defiant. Among them was Emma Balfour, whose May 30th diary entry read, The general impression is that they fire at the city in that way thinking that they will wear out the women and children and sick, and General Pemberton will be impatient to surrender the place on that account. But they little know the spirit of the Vicksburg women and children if they expect this. Emma Balfour was a remarkable woman whose strength would be tested to its very limit by the hardships of the siege. 
but she declared defiantly, Rather than let them know that they are causing any suffering, I would be content to suffer martyrdom. Balfour's sentiments were shared by many people during the early days of the siege, but as the bombardment continued day after day, week after week, and living conditions steadily worsened, even the most resolute began to weaken and waver. During one of the more intense periods of shelling, the rector of the Episcopal Church, Dr. William Lord, and his family crouched in the basement of the church. His wife, Margaret, tried to comfort their daughter, Lida, who was terrified by the exploding shells. Margaret said, Don't cry, my darling. God will protect us. The little girl sobbed uncontrollably and answered, But Mama, I'm so afraid that God's killed too. The shelling and constant fear of death or injury weighed just as heavily on the Confederate soldiers manning the defenses as it did on the civilians who were trapped in the besieged city. The June 9th diary entry of Lieutenant Drennan reads, Another day like the past 21, as one day could be like another. Monotony does not convey all the sameness of these days. Two days later, Drennan wrote, The mortality here at this time is very great. Hardly a day passes, but I see dozens of men carried to their last homes. They are buried in a trench with a blanket for their shroud. Coffins cannot be had for all of them. Graves are dug today for use tomorrow. Everyone began to fear the worst as the siege dragged on into the heart of the summer and the besieging Federal Army slowly strangled the life out of Vicksburg. Rations for military personnel dwindled and declined in quality. Food supplies for townspeople became scarce as well, and prices for even the simplest commodities skyrocketed. It was reported that by the end of June, a person could walk through the marketplaces along Washington Street and see skinned rats hanging for sale. The Daily Citizen, Vicksburg's leading newspaper, resorted to publishing on wallpaper. Yet even amid the hardships, most people clung to hope as long as possible. They reasoned that the authorities in Richmond wouldn't forsake so important a place as Vicksburg. Foremost in their minds was the knowledge that the renowned general, Joseph E. Johnston, had been sent to Mississippi with the specific purpose of rescuing Vicksburg from the Yankees' clutches, and the successful fulfillment of Johnston's mission was the constant prayer of those trapped in the city. The relief of Vicksburg was indeed the focus of much discussion in the rebel capital of Richmond during May and June 1863. Confederate President Jefferson Davis directed that troops as far away as the Atlantic coast be rushed to Johnston. Davis and Secretary of War James Seddon even contemplated detaching units from Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and sending them westward in a desperate attempt to relieve Vicksburg. Lee, however, thought little of the idea of taking troops away from his command and sending them west to Mississippi. 
He successfully argued his case at a meeting with Davis and Seddon in Richmond in mid-May. Lee wouldn't have to send men west, but would instead move north in June, with the result that during the first three days of July 1863, the Army of Northern Virginia would clash with the Army of the Potomac in south-central Pennsylvania at a crossroads town named Gettysburg. Unable to secure Lee's agreement to materially aid in the relief of Vicksburg, Davis, in desperation, looked to Confederate forces west of the Mississippi River as a possible source of help for Pemberton's besieged garrison. Davis urged Edmund Kirby Smith, recently appointed to command the Trans-Mississippi Department, to do whatever he could to aid Pemberton. Smith didn't think that his relatively tiny force could accomplish much, but directed both Richard Taylor in Louisiana and Theophilus Holmes in Arkansas to strike at federal outposts on the west side of the Mississippi. Such attacks, if successful, might, perhaps, compel Grant to weaken his forces around Vicksburg and thereby provide Johnston with an opportunity to relieve Pemberton. Taylor's objective was a string of federal camps at Milliken's Bend, Young's Point, and Lake Providence. A few months earlier, these staging areas on the west side of the Mississippi, opposite Vicksburg, were crowded with thousands of Union soldiers and tons of supplies. But by early June, the war had passed them by, and now they were little more than camps of instruction for new black regiments. Truthfully, the west bank of the Mississippi River, opposite Vicksburg, had become a backwater. Taylor suspected as much and didn't believe that attacks on outposts such as Milliken's Bend would deter or distract Grant in the slightest. What Richard Taylor really wanted to do was return to south-central Louisiana and threaten Union-occupied New Orleans. But nevertheless, now Taylor did as instructed and led his small command into northeast Louisiana. He later wrote that his protests over the futility of this movement were useless and, quote, I was informed that all the Confederate authorities in the East were urgent for some effort on our part in behalf of Vicksburg and that public opinion would condemn us if we did not try to do something. Anxious to strike immediately and be done with it, Taylor decided to send Major General John Walker's Texas Division against Milliken's Bend and Young's Point, while Colonel Frank Bartlett's 13th Louisiana Cavalry Battalion struck at Lake Providence. According to recent intelligence, the federal outposts were occupied by small numbers of white soldiers and large numbers of recently recruited black troops and so Taylor didn't expect much resistance. The Confederates left Richmond, Louisiana on the evening of June 6th with the goal of arriving at the federal camps by sunrise. At Oak Grove Plantation, the road forked. Walker sent Brigadier General Henry McCulloch's brigade toward Milliken's Bend and Brigadier General James Haw's brigade toward Young's Point a few miles downriver. Walker remained at Oak Grove with one brigade in reserve. 
Colonel Herman Lieb was in command of the Federal outpost at Milliken's Bend. His force consisted of the 23rd Iowa and several Louisiana regiments of black soldiers in various stages of training. At dawn on June 7th, McCulloch deployed his Texans into line of battle and advanced across the level terrain, quickly driving the outnumbered Federals behind a levee topped with the barricade of cotton bales. As the Texans stormed the levee, a withering volley from the Iowans and the black regiments stunned the rebels. But many of the inexperienced African-American soldiers were unable to reload their weapons before the charging Texans were upon them. McCulloch reported, quote, The line was formed under heavy fire from the enemy, and the troops charged the breastworks, carrying it instantly, killing and wounding many of the enemy by their deadly fire, as well as the bayonet. McCulloch also noted, quote, this charge was resisted by the Negro portion of the enemy force with considerable obstinacy, while the white or true Yankee portion ran like whipped curs almost as soon as the charge was ordered. A vicious melee erupted as the Texans surged over the levee and into the federal encampment. A member of the 16th Texas later recalled how, quote, the enemy gave away and stampeded pell-mell over the levee in great terror and confusion. Our troops followed after them, bayoneting them by the hundreds. The surviving Federals fled in disorder to a second levee near the river. McCulloch's Texans approached the new Union line, but were halted by cannon fire from the ironclad USS Choctaw, which David Dixon Porter had stationed near Milliken's Bend for just this sort of emergency. McCulloch sent an urgent request to Walker asking for reinforcements, but before help arrived, another gunboat, the Lexington, steamed into sight. Realizing that his troops were no match for the big guns of the Union Navy, McCulloch withdrew back to Oak Grove. The Texans lost 185 men at Milliken's Bend, 44 killed, 131 wounded, and 10 missing, but inflicted 652 casualties on the unprepared Federal force, 101 killed, 285 wounded, and 266 missing. Most of the missing Federals were black soldiers who were carried off by the withdrawing Confederates as recovered runaway slaves. From the Confederate perspective, Milliken's Bend may have been a tactical victory, but it was a strategic failure as far as having any impact at all on the siege of Vicksburg. The engagements at Young's Point and Lake Providence were of even less significance. The long and the short of it was that, as Richard Taylor well knew, by the beginning of June, events on the west bank of the Mississippi River had no effect whatsoever on what was happening at Vicksburg. Department Commander Kirby Smith acknowledged as much when he permitted Taylor to then hurry south and attempt to throw a scare into the Union occupation force at New Orleans. For the Federals, far more important than the outcome of the combat at Milliken's Bend or the actual performance of the black soldiers, which was about what could be expected from inexperienced troops taken by surprise in their first fight, 
was the widespread acknowledgement that former slaves would and could fight on a battlefield. As War Department Representative Charles Dana observed, quote, The bravery of the blacks in the Battle of Milliken's Bend completely revolutionized the sentiment of the army with regard to the employment of Negro troops. I heard prominent officers who formerly in private had sneered at the idea of Negroes fighting, expressed themselves after that as heartily in favor of it. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Farther north in Little Rock, Theophilus Holmes had for quite some time been contemplating an attack against the federal enclave of Helena on the west bank of the Mississippi River. Located on a rare stretch of high rolling ground in eastern Arkansas, the town was an important supply depot and a center for recruiting black Union soldiers. Helena was fortified and garrisoned by about 4,000 Federals, commanded by Major General Benjamin Prentiss of Shiloh fame. Assaulting the town would be a challenge for the Confederates, but it was an important Union outpost on the Mississippi, and a rebel success there might, perhaps, cause Grant to divert men and resources away from Vicksburg in order to recapture the place. Confederate plans for the assault against Helena evolved very slowly, and so rather than making the proposed movement in conjunction with Taylor's strike down in northeast Louisiana, Holmes didn't get underway until June 22nd. After the calamities at Prairie Grove and Arkansas Post six months earlier, Holmes was desperately short of manpower, but he threw everything he had into the Helena operation. In late June, the Confederates began moving eastward from Little Rock and Jacksonport with a force of over 7,600 men. On July 3rd, the converging columns were only five miles from Helena. Holmes intended to attack with the rising sun on the 4th of July. 
Meanwhile, in Helena, Prentice had been alarmed by the reports of increased Confederate activity in the area. He put soldiers and contrabands to work, strengthening the town's defenses, which consisted of a large redoubt known as Fort Curtis immediately west of Helena and four smaller outlying works on commanding hills. Those works were known simply from north to south as batteries A, B, C, and D. A semicircular line of rifle pits connected those five positions. The Federals also felled hundreds of trees in front of their works to create a vast abatis and to completely block the roads leading into town. After strengthening Helena's defenses, Prentice was reasonably confident that he could deal with whatever the rebels had in mind. 58-year-old Theophilus Holmes was a bit on the old side for a field command during the Civil War, but nevertheless he was anxious to strike the Federals here at Helena. He told his subordinates, quote, This is my fight, and declared that if he succeeded, he wanted the glory, while if he failed, he would shoulder the blame. Holmes' enthusiasm was shared by the rank-and-file rebel soldiers in his command, who began to move forward around midnight. Darkness slowed the advance, and then, within a mile of Helena, forward progress was halted completely when the Confederates ran into the massive tangles of felled trees. The rebels had no pioneer troops armed with axes to clear a path, so the men simply broke ranks and literally crawled through the timber barricades, but they had to leave their artillery behind. The Confederate infantry assault began at dawn. On the left, Brigadier General John Marmaduke's brigade approached Battery A on its hill, while on the right, Brigadier General James Fagan's brigade advanced against Battery D atop another hill. However, the main rebel attack came in the center, where Major General Sterling Price's 3,000-man division surged up Graveyard Hill against Battery C. According to a federal soldier in the 28th Wisconsin, Price's Confederates came on, quote, yelling like so many fiends let loose from a bottomless pit, end quote. Price's men overran Battery C, but found they would still be without artillery support since the captured Union guns here were useless to them. The Federals had spiked one cannon and carried away the friction primers for the other. The high ground on Graveyard Hill overlooked Fort Curtis, the Federal line's principal defensive position, so if Price's men had been able to use the captured enemy guns, that cannon fire probably would have forced the Yankees to flee or surrender. But as it was with their own artillery far to the rear, beyond the timber barricades, the Confederate infantry on Graveyard Hill had no way to bombard Fort Curtis. Prentice formed a new defensive line and brought all available Union artillery, including the heavy cannon aboard the gunboat USS Tyler, to bear on Graveyard Hill. The intense shelling took a fearful toll on the Confederate attackers and spread confusion in their ranks. A soldier in the Federal's 2nd Arkansas said, quote, The air was full of shells, and we could see the rebel lines open and see them falling in all directions. After fending off a weak assault against Fort Curtis, Prentice ordered a counterattack and recovered Battery C. 
the Confederates fell back in confusion, leaving the ground around Helena strewn with their dead and wounded. The Independence Day engagement at Helena is little known today, but it was an intense battle and a resounding Confederate defeat. Theophilus Holmes lost just over 20% of his command, 1,636 of the 7,646 troops he committed to the engagement. On the other hand, the Federals, despite being outnumbered about two to one, suffered remarkably few casualties. Prentiss lost only 239 men, 57 killed, 146 wounded, and 36 missing. It's natural to ask if Confederate operations in Louisiana and Arkansas might have been successful. Historian Ed Bars believes so, writing, quote, If undertaken at an earlier date, in late April or early May, a slashing southern onslaught against one or more of Grant's Louisiana enclaves might have jeopardized the Union campaign. Bars goes on to point out that, quote, It was only after Pemberton's army was under siege and the situation had become desperate that the trans-Mississippi soldiers were committed, and when they were, it was too little, too late. Even had Holmes succeeded in overwhelming the federal defenders at Helena, it would have been a hollow victory. That's because even as the Confederate assault overran Graveyard Hill at Helena on the morning of July 4th, white flags were appearing all along the rebel lines at Vicksburg. Back in Mississippi, Joe Johnston's growing Confederate force east of Vicksburg had represented the only real hope of saving Pemberton's besieged garrison. Johnston, however, was far less resolute than his fellow rebel commanders over in Louisiana and Arkansas. After evacuating the state capital of Jackson on May 14th, Johnston established himself about 25 miles to the north at Canton and began to assemble what he called the Army of Relief. From Richmond, Jefferson Davis and Secretary of War Seddon did their part. They hurried soldiers, equipment, and supplies toward Canton from all parts of the Eastern Confederacy except Virginia. By early June, Davis and Seddon had provided Johnston with 32,000 troops, which was a truly remarkable achievement given the scarcity of Confederate resources and the precarious condition of the Southern Rail System. When Pemberton's 30,000-man garrison at Vicksburg was taken into account, the rebels in Mississippi enjoyed a substantial numerical superiority over Grant's Army of the Tennessee. Although this advantage didn't last long, Johnston was nevertheless presented with a window of, of opportunity to save Vicksburg. Unfortunately for the Confederate cause, Joe Johnston failed to seize that opportunity. Instead, he was seemingly paralyzed by his own defeatism from the moment he'd arrived in Mississippi in May and immediately declared, I am too late. Such a lack of boldness on Joe Johnston's part was unimaginable to Pemberton's soldiers. 
Weeks into the siege, they remained confident that the renowned Johnston was surely moving heaven and earth to rescue them, and they were certain the boom of his guns would be heard any day. On June 1st, Lieutenant Drennan confided to his diary, I have every reason to believe that ten days will bring relief in the person of General Johnston and 50,000 men. God send him quickly. The belief, or hope, expressed by the young officer and many of his comrades slowly faded. Ten days later, Drennan's optimism had dimmed, and he lamented, I had fixed on the tenth of the month for General Johnston to come to our relief, but that day has come and gone, and no relief in hearing as yet. I do not despair by any means, yet I confess that I feel disheartened. Pemberton also began to have his doubts about Johnston. On June 15th, nearly a month into the siege, Pemberton urged Johnston, I think your movement should be made as soon as possible. But by that time, Pemberton probably actually harbored little hope that Johnston was going to move swiftly or decisively. When Pemberton finally asked directly, What aid am I to expect from you? Johnston replied with an echo of his infamous I am too late declaration, saying now, I am too weak to save Vicksburg. From Richmond, Jefferson Davis and members of his cabinet urged Johnston to move quickly, none more forcefully than Secretary of War Seddon, who admonished the bulky general, saying, quote, Vicksburg must not be lost without a desperate struggle. The interest and honor of the Confederacy forbid it. Despite prodding from his superiors in Richmond, pleas from Vicksburg, and a rising clamor from the Southern press, the general on whom the hopes of the Confederacy in the West rested would not act. Joe Johnston remained unmoved and immobile. Having convinced himself that nothing could be done to save Vicksburg, he did nothing. As the week slipped by, Johnston complained of his lack of men, horses, wagons, artillery, and supplies, offering an array of creative reasons for his inactivity. In truth, as historian Michael Ballard points out, quote, Johnston never had any intention of trying to save Vicksburg or its defenders. As usual, when a bold offensive maneuver was necessary, Johnston found every excuse not to move. Ulysses S. Grant was aware that Johnston was amassing a concentration of troops east of Vicksburg, so the Federal Army commander requested reinforcements of his own. The Lincoln administration responded promptly and ordered troops to Vicksburg from nearly every corner of the Union. In mid-June, for example, Major General John Park's IX Corps, veterans of Antietam and Fredericksburg, who had only recently been detached from the Army of the Potomac, arrived in Mississippi from Kentucky. And in contrast to the Confederates, the Federal High Command didn't hesitate to call upon forces in the Trans-Mississippi and bring them east across the Great River. 
Major General Francis Herron's division of the Army of the Frontier marched across the Ozark Plateau from northwest Arkansas and made its way to join Grant. Grant used Herron's men to complete the investment of Vicksburg by placing them on the extreme left of the interior line near the Mississippi River at the southern end of the siege lines. But Grant used the majority of the new arrivals to establish what became known as the exterior line. This new ring of earthworks paralleled the federal trenches that encircled Vicksburg, but it faced outward. The exterior line ran east from Haynes Bluff, overlooking the Yazoo River north of Vicksburg, to Oak Ridge, and then south to the railroad bridge across the Big Black River, the scene of the May 17th fight east of Vicksburg. The line didn't extend south of the bridge because Grant didn't believe Johnston could cross the lower Big Black. The exterior line was less than half the length of the interior line, but it was ultimately manned by 34,000 troops supported by 72 guns, all under the command of Grant's most trusted subordinate, William Tecumseh Sherman. The sole purpose of the bristling array of redoubts and trenches and rifle pits was to keep Joe Johnston's Army of Relief at bay should it attempt to aid Pemberton. In retrospect, construction of the exterior line was unnecessary. It was built and manned because Grant greatly overestimated Joe Johnston's inclinations for bold offensive movements. When Johnston finally ordered his troops to march out of Canton on July 1st, he made no attempt to test the federal works. Instead, after cautiously approaching the Big Black River two days after setting out, Johnston immediately concluded that he couldn't force a crossing in the face of such impressive defenses, and he prepared to turn around and return to Canton. But by then, whatever Joe Johnston did was immaterial. As the misnamed Army of Relief hovered there on the near side of the Big Black, its officers and men noticed that the distant boom of artillery over to the west had stopped. An ominous silence settled over the countryside, signaling that time had finally run out for the defenders of Vicksburg. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Receding Tide, Vicksburg and Gettysburg, The Campaigns That Changed the Civil War by Edwin C. Bars with J. Parker Hills. Ed Bars is a legend in the Civil War community, really, having established himself as a battlefield guide without peer. And this book is a distillation of his research and insights into two pivotal campaigns that culminated within days of each other in July 1863, Vicksburg and Gettysburg. And, almost uniquely, it's written in the present tense, so it's like having the events unfold right before your eyes. Don't forget you can find all of your, our book recommendations at the show's website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then, as we wrap up the show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, 
Sandra, and Brian. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next week. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.